Hey, everybody. We're here today with our really good friend, Tony Felice, who was featured on episode 335 of our Teak Bootcamp podcast titled Kindness in Combat. He's brought to us the brilliant Tammy Crawford, who is our guest today. I'm really excited to tell her story and how she's now giving back to the community in ways we simply just never could. Tammy is a mom of her daughter, Jessica, who unfortunately became ill with Lyme disease. Once Tammy realized the horrors that we go through in the Lyme community, after going through this experience and getting her daughter back to some level of health, Tammy jumped right in and formed a not-for-profit focus on Lyme. Tony and some of our other past podcast guests, wink, wink, tune in for who those may be, have done some amazing work. They spoke on Capitol Hill. They've led a ton of research science-backed conferences to bring together leaders in the community to collaborate and make real tangible changes for the Lyme community. She's funded hundreds of thousands of dollars to various fields in the Lyme community, including better testing, which we so desperately need. And she even has a bio repository, which is really cool. And we're going to kind of tease that just here. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But Tony, first of all, I'd like to just welcome you before we get into Tammy and just thank you for coming back on the podcast as a co-host and bringing us Tammy. Hi, Matt. It's great to be back. God bless you again for all the work that you're doing. And I've listened to so many of your podcasts and the wide variety of guests and the consumable information that you give to people is just outstanding. I'm so delighted to be here today with my friend Tammy. So, Tony, I just think it's so cool that you're bringing all this together and we're expanding our Tick Boot Camp community and family. So, Tabby, maybe if you could just tease, I'm kind of winging it here, and I know this was not our plan, but can you just tell us how you first met Tony, and then we're going to go all the way back to what life was like before Lyme was on your radar? Yeah, definitely. Um, I first met Tony um, because of a mutual um, connection at uh, a place called TGen in Phoenix. That was the first place we funded. Um, we looked at RNA sequencing research for um, a diagnostic for Lyme through them, and um, and they, there was a wonderful woman there that introduced me to Tony and uh, Tony and I met in a coffee shop and uh, we started talking and immediately our passion to make a difference aligned very, very well. And, you know, I came in to Lyme with a lot of experience in other fundraising um, aspects and as, as a business owner and different things. So I had a, a, a different background maybe than some of the other other people that were getting involved, um, other foundations that were getting involved. And Tony really supported um, kind of the, my thought process that we needed to just say, and Focus Online was kind of designed around the idea that we're going to solve one problem at a time, because there's so many problems that if we spread ourselves too thin, we wouldn't be necessarily successful. So that's what we did. That's Amazing. And I'm so happy that the two of you met because, again, the contributions that you brought to this community are awesome. And I just want to tell everybody, stay tuned because TGen is a really cool company and a really cool program that you guys have funded. But let's go all the way back because you said you had a background that was able to help you, that was really helping you be successful once you got into the Lyme world. What was your background? Talk about your life before you got into Lyme advocacy and Lyme fundraising and what that was like before all this got on your radar. Yeah. So I, I did have sort of a unique background in that, um, you know, I did. I graduated from U of A, I had a science background and then went into medical sales where I sold like 2,200 products into the hospital market. So I had a really, I knew a, a little bit about a lot of things, you know, enough to be dangerous. And then um, we start when my husband and I started the company, he, we had a foundation that was part of our company. So we had that 
foundational piece in place. And um, it was called Leadership Children's Foundation. And we mostly funded um, organizations that benefited children and provided hope. Uh, it was kind of our the main mission of that. And our son was diagnosed with type one diabetes when he was nine. And I really threw myself into the research. I spent six years working in um, grant review for uh, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Um, I spent a lot of time doing fundraising. I even like ran the chapter for a period of time when they had sort of a, a, a missing person, so it's kind of, so to speak, of a, they're missing a director. So I had, I had all of those pieces, you know, in my background and we'd raised, you know, millions and millions of dollars at JDRF. And I'd seen the science. I worked in immunology. I saw how things were improving because of quality published research. And um, that's really what, what propelled me. I felt like I knew where I could see the gaps and I could see what, what could possibly move the field forward. And so I, I kind of wanted to just use all my background and experience to, to try to make a difference in line. So what, where were you growing up? Give us some context. What part of the country were you in and was Lyme on your radar before your daughter got sick? No, I mean, I had heard about it because of my education, you know, just being in microbiology classes and things like that. But I, even when uh, she was sick and actually got diagnosed, I, I just believed she'd take an antibiotic and it would be over. You know, I didn't know anything about chronic or long post-treatment Lyme disease or any of that. So um, it was super shocking to me. So I grew up in Eastern Washington, never, we had ticks and dogs and all the things, but never had really heard of Lyme. And then living in Arizona, we lived on a competition water ski lake. And on that lake were birds nesting and our dogs running through the bushes and all the things. So we had ticks and Jessica had her first tick bite that we knew of um, in sixth grade. And then again, got, got very, very sick at age 19. And her doctor believed she was, she was likely reinfected, like had, had gotten an infection, probably did okay, got through it. And then likely was reinfected at that time. And that's what really, she never really fully recovered from. I mean, when she had, the, I think you said sixth grade, she had the first tick bite, correct? Mm -hmm. When she had that first tick bite, did you go to the doctor? And if so, what did the doctor say about the tick oh, bite? We didn't go to the doctor. We didn't, no, we just, she just pulled it out. She pulled it out of her own head and that was right by her hairline. And no, we didn't know anything. So we didn't take an antibiotic. We didn't do anything. Right. So walk us through when she got sick at 19, what that was like, what her first symptoms were, and when finally Lyme got brought to the table as a potential root cause of her illness. Yes. Yeah, so Jessica started having um, severe pain in her hands and feet, like to the point it was waking her at night, couldn't hold her steering wheel in her car, couldn't hold a book to read for, to study for school. Um, and because Spencer had type one diabetes and um, it's an autoimmune disease, I thought potentially she had rheumatoid arthritis. So we started going to, um, you know, we started reaching out to physicians and they were testing her and all the tests were coming back negative. And we had a doctor, a friend of ours at uh, TGen that referred us to an infectious disease specialist. And he did like, he did an MRI, they did a uh, spinal tap. She had some facial paralysis. She had um, her symptoms progressed really pretty quickly. So from the time she first, she had like a fever and a full body rash. And then very quickly, um, the pain in her hands and feet appeared. And then it just continued like she started having migratory joint pain and then more muscle pain and then horrible fatigue and then short-term memory loss. I like couldn't find her car in a parking lot. 
And Jessica graduated early from college, summa cum laude with, you know, amazing, she was amazingly smart, super physically active, was on the ASU water ski team, a competitive dancer her whole life. And she couldn't do anything. Like I, I had to push her through the airport in a wheelchair. She couldn't walk that distance, you know? So it was something was horribly wrong and it was getting bad so quickly and nobody could in the traditional medical world, when you have something wrong, you think I go, I'm going to go to a doctor and they're going to help me. And we went to the doctor and nobody could help us. They mm -hmm. didn't know. I mean, and, and it's easy to be annoyed at the doctor, but the doctors aren't really educated either. I mean, they don't have the tools they need to do a good job for the patients. So it was pretty clear that there's just a ton of confusion. And the infectious disease doctor at, thought that I was one that was crazy because I was just so scared and intense about getting Jessica better. And it was, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it, it was a horrible position to be in as a parent, just watching your child fail and her health just go downhill and having no one to turn to that can help you. And, and luckily she had a, she had a naturopath who was from the East coast who would test her for everything like MS and lupus and all, everything was normal. And then she said, I don't know, if, I don't know if this is, you have this, but it's a Hail Mary, but we're going to test you for Lyme. And the Lyme test came back one of the most positive tests anyone had ever seen. Like when we would go to other physicians after the initial test, they were all like, wow, like this is very positive, you know, which is unusual. Doesn't always happen like that. Um, but that gave me, was the Western blot. Was it the traditional like lab core Western blot? At the time? Blot, yeah. Eliza Western blot. And that gave us the green light to start treating. And we luckily found Dr. Horowitz uh, and Dr. Cameron, all these pretty famous Lyme doctors up in New York area. And that's where we went to get treated initially. So she went on a, a lot of IV therapy and and went down the Lyme road and still is, she's still there. I mean, today, even right now, she's being she's going to get IVs twice a week because she's not feeling well again. So. Yeah, I think you brought up so many good points already. And I think I just want to highlight, you said that you had a friend that worked at TGen who referenced, sort of farmed you out to people, right? And that seems like that was the beginning of pulling on that thread of TGen, which comes back later on in the story. And eventually you found these, this West Coast, I'm sorry, East Coast doctor who ran the test, did the Hail Mary. And thankfully you were one of the few. We know that some numbers say as low as 30%, as high as 50% is the accuracy of the standard two-tier testing, the ELISA and the Western blot. So I guess, thankfully, but maybe not so thankfully, she tested positive and you treated with some of the best doctors, Dr. Horowitz, Dr. Cameron, both of whom we've had on this podcast and are really well-versed when it comes to ulti-borne illnesses and chronic Lyme disease. So what sent you in that direction? Once you got diagnosed, it sounds like it was a naturopath who diagnosed your daughter, Jessica. Did yeah. they refer you out to see Horowitz and Cameron in New York? No, what happened was we went back to the infectious disease doctor who said, and, no, I think our first trip actually was um, I'd reached out to someone who had who'd worked under Alan Steer. And Alan Steer was, for those who don't know, was one who discovered Borrelia, the organism that causes Lyme disease. And his and this guy was in Denver. And so we flew to Denver and he was a an arthritis specialist. And he told Jessica that chronic Lyme did not exist, that she did not have that. He thought she had a rare genetic disorder. He tested her for that, which she did not have, uh, but it was emotionally devastating to Jessica. You know, we'd made that big trip to Denver thinking we were going to get help. And instead she was told it was like all of her, I mean, she was at that point so very ill and to be told it doesn't, 
exist by a doctor that's supposed to be a specialist and that are studied under somebody who knows this disease. It was really terrible. And so we came back and I ended up going to a con- an ILETS conference um, in San Diego. And that's Dr. Horowitz, Horowitz was speaking. And I, I literally uh, went up to him afterwards and Jessica said that I tried to kidnap him. <laughs> Which I kind of, he did, he was coming to Phoenix. to. I would have done the same thing. Yes. He was coming to Phoenix to speak at a, um, at an, at another conference a couple weeks hour, right after the San Diego trip. And I picked him and his wife up from the airport and took him, we took him to dinner and, and he ended up talking to Jessica about becoming a patient. And that, that was kind of how that happened, but it was, it took a Herculean effort, you know, and that's kind of like, again, why we think about like what, made me decide to, to go down this path and to try to make a difference was like, who's going to do that, right? Like yep. who's go to a medical conference. I actually got in through another doctor. I mean, it's just, it was just a nightmare, you know? And But kudos to you, Tammy, because after a doctor told you and your daughter, chronic Lyme isn't real and it's not Lyme, you still went to an eyelash conference, which started this whole journey for you to get your daughter back to some sort of health and also doing what you're now doing to get back to the community. Not many people would continue on after being told by a medical professional, it's not chronic Lyme, it's not real, move on to something else. So I think that's a huge testament for you and your determination to find the real root cause, despite what some of these leaders, quote unquote, might be telling you, right? And our infectious disease doctor in Phoenix told us it didn't exist. And she, yeah, so I, but I had been researching every day, every night. I mean, I was up hours upon hours upon hours and I fortunately had the background, right? So I had all this background with JDRF where I'd worked in immunology and done grant reviewing and I knew the terminology and I could read these things, you know, and I, I just read and read and read and I was convinced based on everything I read. And it was, again, it was so scary because like when Jessica ended up, she ended up getting a port put in. And she already was anaphylactic reactions to milk and egg and multiple other things. She's got horrible food allergies. And I knew that it was very, it was dangerous to put that amount of antibiotic into a child who's that reactive, you know, but I also knew she would have no quality of life if she stayed the way she was. And it's just a, a parent should never have to make that decision, you know, like the doctors went along with it, but it was like, but I was really calling the shots at that point. And I talk to parents in that situation all the time. And I just, I plead with them to get a good doctor because once we were in, we, I, you kind of almost have to hand your person over to a physician that you trust, like Dr. Horowitz, or there's a, there's a lot of Lyme literate physicians all over. We're seeing someone in, uh, locally in Phoenix that we love, Dr. Franco, and he's amazing. And so it's, you just have to trust the process, but you, you know, most people are not equipped to be there husband, wife, child, a doctor, you know, and that's what happens or your own personal advocate doctor, like you're not a doctor, you know, you don't, you you haven't gone through schooling, you don't know these things. So it's, it just puts people into such a frustrated state. You know, they, it's, yeah, just. And a hopeless one. When we met, I, there was, there was two years of undiagnosed Lyme disease. My journey, very similar to Jessica's. I was at my wits end. I had brain fog and vertigo for two years, in addition to the other symptoms, which made looking at things complicated, you know, scientific abstracts, et cetera, very difficult. I graduated from the College of Engineering. I was fortunate to be able to take all the science classes that I had a passion for, including microbiology. And so like you, Tammy, I had some knowledge, but I was in the dark. 
And at that stage, we were in our infancy with a lot of the organizations that were starting to just become more formalized, but there were very few resources. And so when Stacy connected the two of us, it was like, you were like a beacon of hope for me. And so I immediately attached my star to your wagon, you know, <laughs> your star rather, uh, my wagon to your star. And, and so um, I'm sure everyone listening can, can really relate to the, your story right now, Tammy. And I, I wish everyone listening had a mother like you or an advocate like you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, Tammy. And I just want to say that, you know, although you are saying most people need to find a doctor they can kind of put their trust in, and I wholeheartedly agree with that, you would not have found Dr. Horowitz if you didn't go and trust your gut and keep fighting because you could have put your trust in the first doctor who said it wasn't chronic Lyme and you would have then been in a much worse situation. So I think it's a balance of finding a doctor who you trust and who you can partner with versus putting a doctor, finding a doctor who's just going to dismiss you. Right. So there's that balance. We're not doctors. We, we do our own research. We become very much educated in the topic, but we can't put our full faith, our blind faith, I should say, into these doctors. And you're a really good example of balancing the two. And a fun anecdote here for Dr. Horowitz. I, I don't know if you know Holiday Goodrow and Olivia Goodrow from the yeah. Blind Foundation. I know. Yeah. When they came on this podcast, Olivia shared with us that she had a, for, I'm sorry, Holiday shared that to get Olivia into Dr. Horowitz, she had to stalk his office nonstop until finally he was coming to a conference in their community and she offered to be his chauffeur and drove him around. That's how she got her daughter and Olivia to see Dr. Horowitz, right? Wow. So uh, a fun message for our listeners, stalk Dr. Horowitz if you can't get in and he'll he'll see you if you drive him around or you stalk him at an ILATS conference, right? <laughs> I have a funny story about that. So when I was so nervous, when I was picking up Dr. Horowitz and, um, and his wife, who I love, and I was so nervous because I was so excited and he was not taking new patients and I didn't know if he would take Jessica. Then when I we were meeting at a restaurant and there were some other people meeting us and I accidentally started driving him to my house just out of autopilot because it was like, I felt like I had like Brad Pitt in the car or something. I was so excited. So I'm driving and I'm talking to him, I'm talking, talking to him, and all of a sudden I look up and I'm like, I just drove them like 30 minutes the wrong direction. <laughs> Oh no, that's hilarious. Turn around and drive him back. I think it took me a while to admit that I actually did that because they didn't know where they were. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. So, you know, we're kind of at this this point here. So when she got diagnosed, Jessica, your daughter, she's with Dr. Harwood. Just give us a quick walkthrough of what her treatment was, how it progressed. And then it sounds like this is the time when you got propelled into the role that you're currently in, which is the, you know, the founder of Focus Online and doing all this great advocacy work for our communities. Was this the tipping point? Was this the thing that made you realize I have to help this community? I think what happened was when I, we started going to see Dr. Horowitz, I actually started doing some, some work with Dr. Horowitz, like helping him, like we ended up kind of helping him reorganize his office, a little bit structure and stuff like that. And I, I got to know more and more about how many people were truly sick. We, I mean, the vastness of the problem became uh, clear to me that we weren't the only people having this problem, that this was like a systemic issue throughout the United States. And it was really, it was overwhelming, you know, to, to think that there were so many people out there suffering. And and then I remember the day, I, I remember where I was sitting, I was on the phone with Dr. Horowitz and I said, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, I'm thinking about starting a foundation and trying to find an accurate diagnostic because when I looked at the whole landscape of the problem, you know, 
ultimately the best thing we can have is is quality funding from you know NIH and the government, right? I mean that's there's a that would be I a wonderful way to progress research and treatment and everything. But because there's controversy about how many people are actually sick and how many people actually are have Lyme, it's not, and because the diagnostics are so poor, it's it's very difficult to really wrap your arms around it. And so from my perspective, I was I believe that if we could accurately diagnose and really understand how many people are, are dealing with this problem, I think it would really help solidify the argument that we need more funding. So I sort of saw it as a step toward getting us where we ultimately want to go, which is, you know, treatments and cures. I mean, it, it's a baby step, honestly, but it, it's a, it's a neat, I think it's a very needed step. So you're treating Jessica, you're with Dr. Horowitz, you have this light bulb of, I want to start a not-for-profit and I want this not-for-profit to be focused on testing because if we can prove people have this disease, then we can get the validation and funding and support we need to actually help the community, right? So kind of walk us down both of those paths as they're occurring, as Jessica's getting treated and as you're developing your ideas to form your not-for-profit focus on Lyme. Yes, so um, so Jessica was flying back and forth to you know New York to see Dr. Horowitz um, and probably like once a quarter, once every few months. Um, and she was getting better uh, right away. I remember she, she started she started to get better pretty quickly. And um, I mean, better meaning she could hold a spoon in her hand without pain and eat a bowl of cereal. <laughs> that was that was an improvement, right? So um, yeah, so we, and, and, and this was an ironic thing. I was sitting on an airplane and uh, flying to see Ava Sappi, um, who to meet her team and help fund some of their research. And on the way there, I sat next to a gentleman who was a pancreatic cancer researcher at TGen. And I told, it turns out his own daughter had had Lyme, had been infected, but he had treated her himself knowing about Lyme. And when I explained our dilemma and where why I was flying there, he said, "You need, you need Paul Kime, and you need, you know, you need to get in, in touch with this infectious disease division of TGen, which I didn't even know existed at the time." And it turned, we it was within days of that meeting. Um, you know, we gave them a check for seventy five thousand dollars, and they started doing uh, RNA sequencing on samples. Tammy, just a quick interruption here. So you're on the plane, you're going to see Ava Shapi, who is a brilliant researcher. I mean, dating back to the Dr. Alan McDonald days, yeah. we've had Dr. Burescano right there. They're like the trio, I feel like, that really work together and still to this day share research. But yes. you you had already formed Focus on Lyme at this point, right, when you're on the flight? Well, I think we we hadn't changed. I We had Leadership Children's Foundation, and that was the name of our foundation at the time. I don't know that we'd officially changed the name even yet. It was that soon. Um, but we eventually did change the name to Focus Online. So we just used that entity and now it's Focus Online. But um, but yeah, we were, I was just going over there to listen to some of her work and to give her a check. So that is wild. But so talk about TGen because you said some a family friend who worked for TGen recommended you go out, you know, and get some testing and ref, you know farmed you out basically when Jessica was first sick. Was this person you ran into on the flight another person from TGen? Yeah. Is this another run-in with TGen? I mean, it seems like really yeah. could, uh, not a coincidence to me that like they keep coming back into your life, right? No, it's so weird. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a total coincidence. But so the reason I, I, I have this 
the Mac and Patty Barons are the people at TGen. Mike works there. Um, Patty's his wife. I got I met them because one of my good friends' daughters was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, and I did research for her family. This was long, long before any of my daughter's situation had come about. And through my research, um, I met Mike Barons, and it turned out they lived close to my house, and we had a mutual friend and his wife let me come over um, for, she told me I had like 15 minutes. I could talk to her husband for 15 minutes. <laughs> so I went over there with this pile of research I'd done to ask him questions about it. And while we're sitting there and I'm going through all these different things, she, she said, I want you to be my friend forever. So she was like, and that was it. So we stayed friends forever. And um, our, my friend's uh, daughter, they, she, uh, she did live, uh, she did live a little longer and then she would have, she did some treatments that helped her. Um, but she, you know, eventually she passed away from the brain tumor, but, um, but it formed a friendship with uh, Mike and Patty that I all have my whole life. I love them. So. You know, the connection between, I mean, specifically glioblastomas and you probably know, Dr. McDonald's work with glioblastomas and how he describes it as Lyme being the scaffolding, right? And it's sort of like the, the genesis of the formation of these glioblastomas. And he's been able to prove it. And even as recently as the last year, he's been publishing more and more papers about this and his relationship to Ava Shapi. So again, you're I'm kind of challenging you a little bit because you said we got to find a doctor that you can trust to guide you, but you became your own doctor for for Jessica, right? I mean, you're researching, you're finding Ava Shopee, you're finding all these connections, right? And you're not being, you're not being kind enough to yourself and how much you brought <laughs> to the table. I'm sorry. Well, but it's also not, it's scary, you know? And I mean, you, you, not everybody's got that risk, risk brain, you know? I mean, I was willing to take some risks to, for the reward and had, I had the, enough background and education and unique you know, I think some of these things are unique. Like I worked in immunology for six years and proved grants. Like I had some of those unique background things. I did have some medical back, you know, medical education and I have a strong interest in this. So it was, it's stuff that I retain because I care about it, you know, and not everyone's going to, I mean, everybody can do, wants to do that. Not everybody, you know, and, and also I was fortunate. I, you know, I was able to pay for my daughter's care. Like not everyone can do that. I am, I am well aware that that is not easy. And I, I, st I, I think the burden of that is one of the things I'd really, really like to see go away. You know, I just, there's no reason that people who are truly that sick are turned away from the, by the medical system. It, it's just, I still can't get over it. And I just, I think it's ridiculous. So even with a positive diagnosis, I mean, every time I'm tested and you can see like, my the the antibody response goes up when I'm having a relapse and then it goes down when I'm not relapsed but it's all it's ever present it lights up like a Christmas tree even the even the the most highly criticized western blot it still comes up and yet I still have to convince doctors that there's a cause and an effect and we have to get to the root cause of that and uh I just most recently I had a neurologist wave her hands in my face and tell me I didn't have multiple sclerosis and that infectious diseases are all over the place. And she lectured me. So even after all this time and, and having uh, friends like Tammy, I still encounter that as many other patients do. It's yeah, very and, and Tony, it's, it is horrible, right? And But I, I think the light here or the hope here is the work, Tony, that you're doing with Tammy 
And the key is science, right? You're, you're holding all these scientific conferences. You're not just putting stuff out there without backing it up. You're putting the money behind these research studies. And the more publications we get, because we know the key to adoption by the mainstream medical community is science-backed publications in scientific journals. And that's kind of what you're doing. And over time, things will have to change, right? And you're not alone. I mentioned Dr. McDonald, but he's done a ton of publications in the last couple of years. Dr. You know, Dr. Cameron and Dr. You know, all these Lyme literate doctors that are out there, Dr. Horowitz, they're doing all these publications too. So I think over time, we're changing that as a, as a community, as an advocacy community, and as, and as a group of people who want to see change, we're slowly making that happen. And I think, you know, it kind of goes to your mission over at Focus Align, which is diagnostics, therapeutics, advocacy, and prevention, because it's a multi-pronged approach. You need better diagnostics to be able to prove you have Lyme, even with the worst test, Tony, like you, you know, you're still testing positive and not everybody can test positive with current diagnostic tools. We need better therapeutics, right? Because you keep having these relapses and we all do. And it's unfortunate, but it's a reality of where we are. But I think we can do better. I know we can do better. Your advocacy piece is key too, because without the advocacy, we're never going to get the funding or the science or the backing to change the way people view Lyme disease. And prevention is key, because if we were able to prevent ourselves from getting infected to begin with, those other prongs wouldn't matter, right? And I kind of just recapped your approach and what your mission is over at Focus on Lyme, Tammy. But can you tell us what thought went into developing that approach and that focus for your not-for-profit? And I think it really outlines the, all the prongs of Lyme disease pretty well. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, those those pillars, I, I guess, are are pretty traditional pillars, I think, for a lot of foundations. But um, I think what we're doing that's a little different is is we know we're, we're small foundation in comparison to like a JDRF or something. And we're aware that we can't do everything at one time. And so by really, I mean, we've spent like the last seven years just working on diagnostics and we've gone through, we've funded a, a, a lot of different technologies. And I um, you know, I worked with Monica Embers on the um, Health and Human Services Working Group that did a report that went to Congress, and we looked at all the diagnostics that are kind of available that are emerging. And I, I think from that work, we sort of realized that it's the disease it changes over time, right? So, what an acute infection is very different than than a chronic, and what your immune system is actually doing during those different times is different. And, and that's been published on by many, many people. And, and there's been recently three big studies on post-treatment Lyme disease that have been funded and uh, they have gotten R01 grants, which is really good. So, I mean, there's definitely interest in understanding what is happening in the body and why some people get better and why some people don't. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of science happening in those, those areas, but, but for us um, right now, the diagnostic is, is, is really on a, on a number one on our list. And, and over the years, we've probably, I think we've raised close to $3 million and funded a lot of different projects. And right now we're finally at a point where we are, um, we're ready to file a provisional patent for uh, some work we've done with Monica Embers. And the diagnostic is coming out about 90% sensitivity and specificity. And it's, it's, going to be a, a, a very big helpful tool, I think, as we move forward. There's a few pieces that are still being worked on. We've got some uh some a little bit of stuff that's going to be happening the next few weeks to months, but um it's only going to make it better. And um we're we're looking at a diagnostic that could potentially be all stages of Lyme disease and all wow. manifestations. Yeah. So wow. that is 
Amazing. Is is the work you're doing with Dr. Embers now related to the work you've been doing all along with TGen, you know, since when you first started this, or is it has it pivoted since then? Yeah, every every project we did we've funded has been a learning experience. And we've taken something from each project that's been pivotal in us being to where we are today. Sometimes it's easy to look kind of look back and be almost annoyed. You know, you're like, oh, you know, I started here and that was nothing, and this is what. But it in but when you really take a big step back and look at the big picture, we I work very closely with Holly Ahern and we have been together this through this whole journey. And she and I understand that, you know, some of our biggest failures were also some of our biggest successes. One of the things that happened at TGen was we were introduced to our diagnostic consultant who's his name is Todd Snowden, and he's been pivotal in our success. I mean, I know for a fact we would not be where we are without him because he knows the industry. He makes sure we make decisions that aren't going to put us down a rabbit hole, you know, and so much comes with, you know, wisdom and trial and error and that he brings, he brings all of that to us. We, we bring the enthusiasm and the science, but he keeps us on track. And that came from our relationship with TGen. So. And you wouldn't be where you are today, weeks away from a patent with Dr. Embers, if it weren't for everything you've gone through with everything, right? And I think the best way for me to equate that is in the Lyme healing journey. It's never the what, I think we call it the, the recency bias in treatment, right? It's not the last thing you did before you started to feel a lot better or, you know, even making some progress. It's the collective everything you did before that. And oftentimes we think, well, I did this and then I felt a little bit better. Nope. It's the cumulative effect of everything you did to get where you are today. And I think that's a really important lesson you're teaching, Tammy, in both the diagnostic and research world, but also in the treatment world, which many of us can relate to, right? So oh God, if you took every supplement or, or <laughs> IV treatment, or if you put them all in a room that I've taken in the last 12 years, it would fill the entire room, right? And so point of clarification, I was on the board with Tammy for quite a few years, but uh, to illustrate how grateful we are to have people who are husbands and wives and sons and friends and colleagues who are taking on this, this effort, for me, the more I focused on Lyme, the sicker I got. So eventually I had to detach. And uh, one of my medical treatments is to pretend like I don't have Lyme disease because the more it's on my mind, the more flares and relapses I would have. And it was heartbreaking for me to have to tear myself away from something that's so important. And uh, that's why I wanted to bring Tammy here today as, as sort of a thank you. And also as, uh, uh, as to tell everyone listening that we have to support these people, right? Because it's very difficult for us to advocate on our own or to even understand what, the, what, what any of the science means. No. Yeah. And, and ta so Tammy, can you go back? So you were, you were talking about when you were on this flight, you were going to see, you know, you're going to see Ava Shopee and you were, then you ran into this gentleman from TGen. So walk us through what you learned from Professor Shopee when you finally met with her and then what kind of work you did with TGen. Now you said you, you dropped 75 grand for that research, you know, what that was like with TGen and then also what you learned from Shopee at, at that point in time. Yeah, no. Um, well, Ava was working on several projects at that time. I think um, a lot of them were around treatment um, at that time. She was doing um, some work with stevia and using that as yeah. you remember that was that day. Um, and yeah, and then I think when we got with TGen, it was, um, I mean, they were working on, they, they had some good success with a relapsing fever. 
But because there's just not a great supply of the organism in the blood, it's very difficult to use something like RNA, like RNA sequencing, at least the type we were doing. It was almost like, it was like a kind of like a PCR on steroids sort of a test. And I just don't think the samples that we had were really that, you know, they, they just didn't have enough of the organism in them for it to be picked up. But what it did show, help us, this is what TGen was the reason we started the biobank, the biorepository, because they needed more samples and we wanted them to look at chronic samples. And no one had chronic samples at that time, except John Alcott. And John's done such an excellent job at Johns Hopkins uh, University with his slice study. I mean, he has the best qualified samples, I think, in the world, honestly. And but there weren't enough of them to go around and it's, you know, and he needs to be very particular about, you know, how he manages those samples and he and Mark Soloski. And so we just, we created our own biobank and it was the funny part of that. The biobank story was. You just created a biobank. Like it was that easy, know, right? Come I on. Know, I know. It was crazy. And Holly she, and I, listen, didn't know we she, were doing. not only did she do that, but she mentioned it to me and a week later, it was like already underway. <laughs> you already had people on it. Uh, so crazy. We didn't really know what we were doing, obviously, but we we uh, we we got an IRB, which you have to do, and we made so many mistakes. You know, like so. One of the things that we did was we thought we would do get like fifty people to show up, and the way we did this was we said we're going to ask the Lyme community because Holly had already been part of an advocacy group, and and so she was like. Let me just put it on Facebook and see who shows up kind of thing. And we went, we used Dr. Uh, Stram's office and um, we did one at the, we ended up doing three blood draws, one, two at Stram's and one at the university where Holly works. But um, it was funny because we, long story short, we ended up drawing 500 people's blood. Wow. And we were shocked at the turnout we got, but people were so, I mean, they just wanted to help so bad. And I, I mean, there were people that would show up and the, their veins had been poked and prodded so much they were having, they couldn't hardly get blood at and they wouldn't let, they wouldn't stop. They just say, keep trying, keep trying. I want to, I want to, I want to help, you know? Uh, and Jeez, you're gonna make me cry. I know it was, it was tough. I mean, I can picture one, one girl in particular was just really tough to watch, but we did that and then we tested everyone's blood and we took a very um, thorough history. We used Dr. Horowitz's um, HMQ and we just really tried to, to qualify those samples. And they've been amazing. I just found out that of those uh, from our biobank, I think we had about, we had 500 patients and we've given out to other researchers in our community and for our own use, we've used 2000 blood samples. So that's cool. I mean, that means a lot of people have learned from that. And we learned a lot in the process. We did. Oh, gosh, you guys would. We did so much of the work ourselves. It was crazy. But yeah, but we did it. And now and the samples have been helpful. So uh, and, and and Bay Area Lyme Foundation is an amazing source for samples. We've been using them now. And and uh, the CDC has a good, good amount of samples. And, and obviously, John Alcott samples are amazing. So there are people that want to, you know, do work online. There's, there's the res, there's more options now than there were when we started. Are you letting people contribute now, or are you referring people out to like Barry Alam if they want to contribute to a biobank? We don't have an active blood draw going right now, and the way it works is like you can't just like 
you know, you have to go to a doctor that's part of the study. And then that doctor has to draw your blood. It goes in a special kit. That kit gets shipped to the biobank. So it's not like you can just be like, hey, I want to volunteer my blood. It does, yeah, it, there's a big process. So it's way more involved than just going to the doctor and go to a lab core and giving blood and having it shipped over to Tammy's house, right? For, for analysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a federal crime. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So this whole TGN thing is fascinating. So I know you did a big fundraiser, and in addition to the seventy-five grand you, you you contributed to them, and a lot of that was the foundation and the legwork that got you to where you are today. But I know you had a really cool fundraiser with a whole bunch of powerful scientific-backed research. And Tony, can you just segue this in before Tammy talks about that fundraiser and how it touched you and impacted your life personally? Oh well, um, first of all, uh, Tammy knows what she's doing. Okay, she has scientific conferences. She has galas with uh, interesting fundraising components. She does a she does a golf classic, and this was at the golf classic in Flagstaff. And so we're all having a good time, and we're uh, not really super focused on the science and all of that. We're, in as much as we're having a good time, but part of the part of the end uh, of the day was sort of a reception, and we were all around the tables having wonderful food, beautiful place where we were at in Flagstaff on the, uh, on a golf resort. And um, and uh, one of the one of the epidemiologists from TGen, which one was it, Tammy? Um, that would have been um, that would have been Dr. Ingelthaler. Yes, he was. He was basically so the audience was filled by with a lot of non <laughs> Lyme patients. Oh, There's wait, a lot wait, of just... was that Paul Kheim? That was Paul Kheim. Paul that Kheim. Was... Yeah. So the Paul so... Kheim's a big deal too, and so is David Ingelthaler. Right. But yes, Paul so Kheim. It's... Board members and folks with Lyme, but mostly it's like people who love Tammy and 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 are, are part of the fundraising community, a part of the charitable community. They all showed up for her and Moss, and it's just a lovely event. And he stood up to talk to us about the research that they were doing, the challenges they were facing, but more importantly, what this means to patients. And I've always attended these events on my own, and my husband went with me to this one. And the doctor stood up there and talked about. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to kill bacteria, right? Uh, uh, there's like a thousand to one bacteria to a, a human cell. I could have the stat wrong, but you have to be very careful in how you do that. And there's a reaction to, for everything. And so there's what's called a Herx reaction that most of you guys know, but the actual IV treatments, the UV treatments, it's akin to chemotherapy. And as he talked about what we face, I think it really struck home for my husband who had He's a very stoic person, doesn't cry like me. I'm passionate Italian. And he was in tears and he was inconsolable for quite a while. But it just gave us hope, you know, and that hope springs eternal. That's the reason why they say that. And it just spreads from person to person. And, um, you know, our caregivers, they got to put up with a lot and they have to be patient. It's been 12 years, 12 year road with my husband. And so it was really impactful, not just for him, but I think for everybody there to understand that this is real. This is real and lives are impacted by this. And we don't really have a lot of time to waste. We have so many people testing positive every year, more than is, is reported. At this stage, it is a national crisis and it deserves the attention that it's not gotten. So we need people like Tammy too, because as soon as the attention does come, and as soon as resources are available and people start focusing, you're going to have a lot of people, try, bottom feeders coming up and trying to exhaust these poor people who have no place to turn 
So we got to make sure that we shore these organizations up so that we know that this is the these are the places we should turn to, not the bottom feeders that will show up in the future. Amen to that, Tony. I mean, we need these we need a bazillion Tamis to be spearheading these groups so we have the right people to helm. You know, have you given yourselves to TGen so that we can clone about 15 of you, Tammy? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> have we perfected that yet? We, we need to. Tammy, walk us through now everything you're doing with TGen, all the discoveries you're making. I mean, what you're learning and some of the some of the advances. I want you to brag a little bit about what you did. I know you're a very humble person, Tammy, but brag. Tell us some of the stats, how much money you raised, some of the cool discoveries that the scientists you've partnered with have discovered. And you know, never mind what, what Tony is describing is you being a leader and putting out this, this message and this strength and this community, that in itself is huge and, and foundational. When we started the, the gala, well, so, so just so the science piece, I'll start there. So as we fund a project and the project has a beginning, has a middle, has an end, right? And so we have moved through our work with TGen. We've moved on from that. We went We've worked, we've done a, we had a huge project we did on culturing. Um, we did not have success with that. We've worked with Drexel University on some projects. We've worked with Tulane on some uh, primate projects, funding some work there. Those have been very educational. We've learned a lot from that. We've done most recently some work. We spent a couple years work funding ASU, working on some work there. And uh, was also, we've learned a lot from that. But none of those things produced a diagnostic test. Um, it really was a combination of um, everything we've learned along the way and some, some published work that Monica Embers has had and some work she's currently doing. And then us continuing to fund that and bring our expertise in and our diagnostic consultants and our AI specialists and biostatisticians. And that sort of work has got us to where we are now. So each project was... It was valuable, but it didn't get us to the goal. And now I think we're, we feel pretty confident we're at the goal. And, um, and the nice thing about, about where we are science-wise is that um, some of the work we're doing could be turned into treatment. So that part is really exciting, especially, but we'll go, I'll go into that in a little bit more in a second. But the, the idea was that, uh, where the galas and the, scientific conferences, those were all kind of wrapped together. So um, you, we would have a full day of scientific conference and then we'd go right into a fundraiser dinner and gala. And the scientific conferences were, it was amazing how well everyone's worked together. And we had, you know, even during COVID, we did a, a virtual one in a giant, in a big ballroom. And, you know, the, the team at Johns Hopkins was working with the team at ASU and collaborating and sharing samples. And, you know, everybody's been amazing. So your your goal that you're so close to right now is releasing a test that is significantly accurate. Is that, is that correct? Close is a relative term, right? Because we want FDA clearance. So that's going to require time and money um, and investment. Um, but but we we definitely have we have something that's gonna that's very valuable to the community. Definitely have that. And that and that within the next few weeks, we should be able to really talk more about detail-wise. But one of the things that is sort of exciting is that um, the, you know, because and because of the antigens we're using and the different things we're using, we have the potential to create some monoclonal antibody uh, treatments. And I mean, that's not going to be an overnight process, but our 
we 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 don't know if there'd be something that could be like a one, you know, it could be like a, a one monoclonal or a co monoclonal cocktail. Um, but always, always along throughout this whole process, treatment and, and cure has always been the ultimate goal. But knowing that you can't get you can't get anybody to pay attention to the treatment and the cure if nobody believes you have the disease, right? So you yeah. have to find a way to convince people that this disease exists and that this form exists. And we also need to understand how much of, of the long, you know, long-term Lyme disease is actually um, based on autoimmune disease. You know, maybe there's overlap with that. We did, we have seen that in some of our work. Um, it, it can be a combination. We think there's a very real possibility there's a combination of both, you know, organism and some autoimmune type function. We, I mean, a lot of work to do, but you don't want to treat people. And, you know, as a doctor, you don't want to treat people without knowing what it is you're actually trying to fix. And that's part of the problem is we have to understand what's the mechanism of the disease. Why are these, what's changing in, in, in Jessica's immune system, right? That wasn't, they didn't change in somebody else who got bit by a tick and got exposed to Lyme. Something happens in some people that doesn't happen in others, right? So that's, that's an important thing to understand. Yeah, I want, to, I want to come back to the autoimmunity piece. I have some follow-up questions on that, but let's talk about breaking down some of those terms because I think it's really important to segue how the diagnostics can be used to translate into a potential treatment for people in the Lyme community. So you said you're using antigens as part of the diagnostic process. Can you just define what is an antigen and how can that be used and translated over to a potential treatment? So an antigen... A antigen-based test um, attracts antibodies, right? And your immune system produces antibodies. And that's like the current Western blot is that type of test. But what's different about like what we're doing is it's considered like next-gen serology because we've look, we look at a, a large array of, of Borrelia-specific antigens. And um and our and and our bodies producing antibodies, and we pick up those antibodies. But if if we were able to create a, a treatment that could help provide antibodies to fight that the the Borrelia, then that that could potentially help the immune system to fight off the long term effects of Lyme. So if if we knew, like for example, that you were exposed to a tick and you had Lyme and you could take something that would enhance, it'd be like supercharge your immune system with what, exactly what it needs to fight that organism, then the potential it could be wiped out or at least kept at bay. So it doesn't make you so sick. So I'm going to break down that the testing side of it. And it sounds like the traditional Western blot is an antibody test and it's using antigens to attract or bring in the immune response, the antibodies, and that's what we're looking for is an antibody response to certain types of bacteria or certain types of Lyme strains that may or may not be in our body. But what you're doing is you're making it very specific where these antigens are almost like sucking up any bacteria that may be out there for Lyme because we know Lyme disease can make you very sick in low concentrations low concentrations in your body. So it sounds like you're, you're making it a much more fine-tuned and precise process to attract these antibodies to be able to result in a higher accuracy rate for these tests. Am I understanding that correct? I just want to make sure I'm interpreting what you're saying. Yeah, that is correct. But we're also, and we're also looking at direct detection. So directly detecting the organism in your body. So both at the same time. So with the two of those together, I think that um, that would be an, a really, it's almost like one is sort of the double check of the other, you know? So 
Yeah, tell talk to us about the directed test. I think that's called the PCR, right? That's the that the PCR testing. Yeah, no, this would be PCR. Um, it it would be different than PCR, but uh, it would be. I mean, I it's very similar to the, the exactly what's happening with antibody, the, the antigen antibody test. Um, just it's just sort of a reverse of that. So, gotcha. but. Because we don't have the patent, I'm, I'm not allowed to go into too much detail. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to push you. It's just fascinating. So you can push oh, back no, and say, I can't tell you this right now, Matt, as much as you want to know. <laughs> I want to tell you more. But, and, you know, we just need to get through that process, you know, but um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's I, I just, you know, I guess what I really want. We don't have all the no one has all the details worked out perfectly at this point, and at least on our team. And I mean, I we don't have everything worked out perfectly, but we we are on our way and we are so committed to helping people with Lyme. And I think if you look at some of the things that have been published lately, I mean, even looking at some cancer, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw what came out recently about um, understanding that some cancer drugs could work on, on Lyme disease because Lyme disease and cancer both need glycolysis to you know, replicate. And so if we can help, if we just stay on track, the track we're on, you know, I think the interest level we have, the Limex has been amazing. They've funded- yes. A lot of amazing work and you know the more I, I mean if we had too many good diagnostics out there that would be a really great problem to have you know yeah we, we had professor Stephen rich on from you know he he's doing a lot of great research it started with the the blood of the i think the white-tailed deer kills the lyme bacteria which was huge you know earlier this year and then just last week he's building off the work of other researchers and he's now expanding upon the knowledge that a lot of cancer drugs can eradicate lyme as well so there's so much going on in this community, right? And yeah. it just gives us hope that you're in connection with them and they're doing all this research and you're doing all this research and everybody's working together. It gives me hope hearing all this because this is a lot of stuff we're hearing from other people. And yeah. it's so cool to see that this community is finally working together because you know sometimes that's we work in our little silos. So it's really cool and, and heartwarming to hear all this, right? That, that we're, we're working together. It gives me hope that we're gonna actually have some change. But I do wanna pivot over, Tony. You know, you, you brought up a good point. Now we're, we're kind of chatting offline and geeking out that <laughs> Lyme disease is not just really broke your fry, right? We hear people say like, hey, I got the European stream of Lyme disease and it's from Europe and we don't even test for it here in the States, right? Can you just can you just drop some of those facts for us just to explain how complex the testing process really is to, to make that a little more easily digestible for us? Was that a question for me? Yes, I'm sorry. I don't mean to put you on the spot, Tony. but just to the expert because I, I, I'm just the mouthpiece uh, that takes the the, the words she gives me and generates the publicity. I'm surprised to learn through our process with TGen that there were like 35 known species of mm -hmm. Lyme disease and that the outbreak in, e even the outbreak in Arizona in 2006 in Flagstaff was, was Miyamoto, which is a Japanese, uh, right. typically associated with Japanese ticks. Um, and so uh, I, I was fascinated to know that. And then we all know that we, that, Patients, depending on whether there are, are co-infections uh, along with the Borrelia, that patients will react to the infection event in different ways, some neurologically, some musculoskeletal, some nervous system. And so, um, but to find out that I, in, in my work with Tammy, that there were 35 known species and that, and that part of the process was trying to be able to extrapolate that, let alone an antibody response to any of those species, it's crazy. Yeah, I think Tony, I think what um, I think if you look at a, a test, let's if you took a test that only has a few markers on it, as opposed to one that's expanded, right? And you know, a species is going to have a lot of similarities, 
and some differences, right? So mm-hmm. as long as we have enough markers that we're biomarkers that we're picking up the majority of all the species, I, I think that will be, will cover a lot of territory. And we peered, we know we're having some success with the European uh, species, which is Canada and, and Europe and everywhere. So we're going to, I think what we're going to be good when it comes to all of that, but it's, I mean, nothing's going to be perfect. And that's why I think it's good. I think we need multiple tests. We need, you know, we need check tests to check the tests, uh, you know, we need all the things. So um, yeah, I mean, all the work everyone's doing out there is really important. And um, I hope, you know, if we just continue to get some funding and keep things moving. That's what we want to do. Tammy, talk to us about co-infections, right? We just recently dropped a podcast with Professor, Bre- Professor Breitschwert. I'm probably butchering his name. Breitschwert, I believe is how you say it. He's from NC State and he's a huge Bartonella expert. And he talked to us about all the different Bartonella species and, you know, how so many people, including these bigwig doctors, don't understand how deep it really is and how many different species there are and how different species can have impact on your psychological state, make, you know, in some cases, maybe even lead to schizophrenia. And, you know, a lot of this is still being researched, but it's just mind blowing to think that just Bartonella alone can create schizophrenia potentially. And that's being under researched as we speak. So are you looking at testing for additional co-infections beyond just all the species that are out there of Lyme disease, or are you focusing on Lyme now and maybe looking at other co-infections down the road? Yeah, we're focusing on Lyme now. I mean, um, yeah, Ed Breischwartz and their uh, Galaxy Labs is their laboratory, and they're amazing. I think they're they, they really are the experts as far as I know in the field, and um, and I think they have a good handle on Bartonella and Bartonella testing. But um, you know, we're we're we know that a lot of people who have Lyme and Bartonella and Babesia are the sickest people. You know, that's that's a, I think physicians who treat Lyme are pretty aware of that. But um, but we have so far have not ventured into the Bartonella territory. I don't think that's on our on our radar at this time. Oh, Bartonella is not fun. No, no, it's scary. It's scary. And my daughter was has been diagnosed with that as well, and Babesia, and treated for all of those. So. Right. Hmm. trying to figure out, okay, I'm having this event. Is it Bartonella? Is it Borrelia? Is it Babesia? Is it all three combined? Like just as a patient, we just have no answers. We don't know. So. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I think sometimes it's good to just, you know, some of the, uh, the treatments overlap, but a lot of them do not, especially with like Babesia, which is more like a malaria or parasite. So you have to have special, you know, different treatments, different medications and stuff for different things. So it's good to have a good physician that, again, that you trust that understands the complexities of the disease. One question that I think would be super helpful. Can you tell us what it was about Dr. Horowitz that you knew he was the guy? And what did you like, uh, like, what are the two or three or four things that, that you might suggest to a patient who is meeting with a Lyme literate doctor that they would want to hear or feel to know that they've chosen the right person? That's a good question. And I, I talk to people all the time who have Lyme and are asking for, you know, my opinion or my referral. I never give people usually one doctor. I'll right. always say, you know, here's two or three people do a phone consult, do a zoom call, go in. If they're out of state, I'll say, you know, just try to do a phone consult. Because listen to what, send them your blood work, let them tell you what they would do, what their philosophy is on treatment. And you will intuitively know, like, I think people have an intuition and I say, you're going to know which doctor fits you the best. And it may not be the one that fits me or Jessica or Tony the best, you know what I mean? But it, the one that fits you the best and, and you'll, you know, you really need to trust 
you have a good, in, people have instincts about, you know, a lot of this. And I think that's some of what, with my own daughter, I just, I think some of it was, you know, you listen to a, you know, you listen to what the doctors are telling you and you, your mind just says, this does not add up, right? Like she, what, do, you know, she has every symptom on this list, but you're telling me this disease doesn't exist. And you know what I mean? So it, it's some of it's just trusting your own gut instincts. And yeah, so with physicians, that's what I do a lot. I just, I have people talk to a couple of them and, but with, for myself, with Dr. Horowitz, he did, he was speaking, um, I'd read some stuff about him and uh, I, you know, I still to this day think he understands the immune system better than anybody I've ever met in my life. He's just a brilliant man. And when he was speaking, I just, I felt like I, I could really trust him, you know? Right. If you were gifted with a billion dollars right now, where would you spend, where, based on what you've learned and where you've been, where would you immediately go with these new resources available to you? What's the, where, where do you, what direction do you think you would head in? Well, I, question. yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'd have to, I'd probably want to divide it up between, you know, getting us the best type of the best diagnostic for all stages of the disease and, um, and, and getting us a good treatment there. There's, been work, you know, from, you know, you guys are familiar with Duke's work on imaging, right? So, um, but that works, that's going to, that's expensive work. I mean, it requires a PET scan and it requires fluorescence and, but, um, but I definitely think moving some of the imaging and some of that, that type of work ahead will, would be so helpful for us because there, there could be no question, right? If you're able to put a fluorescent tag on, on, you know, something that could go right to a heat shock protein that goes right to the organism, lights it up and can carry, potentially carry a treatment with it. I mean, right. that's, that's life-changing. And right. why I, isn't there an app that the CDC has released that is an exposure notification when there's more than five uh, seropositive events that happen in a community so that you're aware that these things are going on in your community because this isn't like the common cold or the flu. If you get it, and especially if you're a child, it's going to be devastating for the rest of the child's life, you know, as it is, I, I feel I probably have a shortened lifespan. I'm surprised I'm still here, frankly, for as bad as it's gotten at times. Mm -hmm. So I'm surprised there isn't some sort of notification system to help us be more safe rather than a news article that happens to appear on the news saying, you know, Lyme disease is uh, under scrutiny in Maine and you're in Arizona and you're like, you don't, it's not even on your radar screen. You know, it's funny, Tony, you know how you said um, part of your treatment is to pretend like you don't have Lyme? Yes. Maybe part of the problem is because no one has an answer. They pretend like it's not there, right? Yes. So, because even if you find out you have, I mean, no one knows what to do. So we're all just sort of like, right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, part of it might just be just, there's, it's like, it's like climbing Mount Everest, but and you, you have to take one step at a time, but you know, that's why sometimes it feels like even like with stuff we're doing, it doesn't always, you know, it feels so slow and so painful and so much waiting and, you know, so much money and so much everything and, you know, time and energy. But, you know, it, we're now we're finally at a point where maybe, you know, we're going to see some movement in a positive direction. And it's got just, you just we just got to keep taking those baby steps, you know, and I think that's true with 
you know, the CDC and everyone, I just think the more educated we all are and the more we have science and proof, the better, the easier it's going to be to have these foundational discussions, you know, because if none of us can say, oh, we're hundred percent sure chronic Lyme is this or that, or, you know, it's there or it's not there, or it's autoimmune or it's not, we, no one can really 100% make that argument because we just don't have enough facts. You know, we don't have enough research. So the foundational stuff has to get there. We have. I just feel like though, totally agree with all of that, but I think some of the work by the early discovery, early people discovered Lyme disease, you mentioned Alan Steer, you you know, Dr. Benach was right here in Long Island where we are. He, you know, right at Stony Brook University, his wife was my high school earth science teacher. (laughs) They, they, recognized early on that chronic Lyme is real. And what they meant was Lyme can persist beyond a standard course of antibiotics. They then quickly did a 180 and said, that's not true anymore. And I think that kind of adamant fighting saying it's not possible, it can persist does us damage. I think we need to be open-minded as a scientific community that, you know, just because we thought something doesn't mean it may be true. And if we have to be open to change, and, and, and that's kind of what I was referring to with the egos earlier, Tammy, right? Is that some people, when they formulate an opinion, they don't, they're not willing to re-examine that conclusion, like, hey, chronic Lyme isn't real, because I had one study that proved Borrelia was eradicated, so there's no way in other circumstances it can persist, right? And I think that kind of does us harm. And We've been fortunate with a lot of the researchers on here and a lot of modern day researchers are very open-minded, but I think we have to be careful to getting stuck in that group think where everybody just comes to a conclusion because ultimately it just hurts the patient, right? And I don't want to, I'm trying, I'm not try, trying to get up on a soapbox here, but I, that's why I'm so thankful for you, Tammy, because you're just so open-minded. You're like, hey, look, it is what it is. We all want to feel better. I want to help people feel better. And that's, that's really what it's all about. So I do want to ask, I know we're getting tight on time here, the autoimmune piece of this, right? Because so many people in this community end up with autoimmune complications when they get Lyme, myself included. Hey, I was a healthy person. I was an athlete. I was living the life, you know, working a ton of jobs, doing whatever, got sick with Lyme disease. And then I had all these autoimmune complications. Do you think that the Lyme experience is triggering or causing autoimmune? Or do you think it's just weakening, weakening us so much that those of us who are susceptible to it or have genetic predispositions to it it's awakening that because it's weakening our bodies and we get chronic Lyme. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because if we're able to test and treat with all the work you're doing, is that, a, is that only a piece of the puzzle? And do we have to work towards reversing the awakened autoimmunity as well? Or do you think that's going to come if we are able to suppress the infection? Yeah. So some of the early work we did with Monica and the primates was um, we did, we infected, um, I think it was four primates and um, one of them had no, like tested negative, but like if you would have taken their blood, it was negative. The other ones had normal responses, but when, um, they looked at the tissue, um, there were the one that had no response at all was filled with Borrelia brain, heart everywhere, but no response on, on the serology, on the blood work. So it was really, that was one of them. When I said, we've learned from all the projects, you know, that was one of the things where we really, I think Bartonella is, is known to be, or are believed to be, and studies have shown it's uh, immune suppressive. Borrelia can be immune suppressive. We saw it in the primates. We've It's been published on by others. Um, so, you know, it is a kind of a chicken egg scenario, probably not, but I, I do think there's 
since we know, since it's not everyone who gets Lyme goes on to have chronic Lyme, it's probably a combination of, of genetics. And it could even be potentially a variant type, you know, it could be a particular yeah. variant of Borrelia that's more aggressive. You know, like remember how some people, when they would get COVID, they'd be like, oh, I barely got sick. And other people would just be wiped out, you know? Yes. Some of that was immune system response and some of it could have been the variant that they got, you know, some, so it's, 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 that's going to be, you know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of work to do to figure all of that out, but it's happening. A lot of stuff is happening. That's good. And um, like I said, those three RIs that just came out, those are all looking at uh, post-treatment Lyme and, and the mechanisms of why, you know, why do those people stay, get sick and stay sick? Yeah, I can agree more with what you just said, right? We don't, we simply don't know what the autoimmune piece is. Is it Lyme causing autoimmune? Is it activating it in us? And, you know, Professor Baumgart from Johns Hopkins was on recently and she talked to us about, and I just, I said this, you know, on our social media a lot, where the Lyme bacteria, if it, if it's, in, if you're infected long enough without proper treatment, it can literally obliterate some of your immune cells. It, it, it will seek out your lymph nodes and it obliterates your long, long-term memory cells to fight certain infections like Lyme disease. So who knows is it chicken or the egg, right? I think it's a really good way to put it, Tammy. So thank you for that explanation. I think that really put it well, but we are getting tight on time. So I just, I want to ask my final question before Tony will finish it up with you is what's on the horizon? What is coming next? We, you already teased us. And I, and, and uh, well, before I finish my question, please, Tammy, when you are able to speak more about what's coming in the coming weeks, please share it with us. We will update our show notes. We will put any, all the links to any, everything you're doing in our show notes. And we'll give an update there because it's going to be about two weeks before this launches. So I'm hoping we can have a, a link in our show notes about all the cool stuff that you're going to be releasing in the coming weeks. But what are you able to share with us about the future of focus online, the future of what you're doing with all of your advocacy work and all of your research and, you know, give us a little bit of hope for that future. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, well, our hope, you know, is an organization and as a team, we, I mean, we have a great group of people we work with. Um, I think we really are, we're excited to have an FDA cleared diagnostic that um, will help physicians and patients. Right. So, I mean, like I said, I, the physicians, they, they want to, do the right thing, hopefully for their patient, and they need the right, they need the right tools. And so hopefully this will be a tool that that will, will give them the confidence to move forward and treat people properly. Um, and ideally, you know, the, we'll continue with focus online. Once we feel like we've made an, a dent in the diagnostic space, then we're going to go after the treatment space very, very Hardly. <laughs> and I think we'll have the, we'll have the ability to do that with, um, with what we have in hand. So those are all exciting things for us. You know, we, we really want to see that happen. Uh, I'm curious about one thing, and that is the rise of AI and what your thoughts are in terms of how AI might be leveraged to help come up with uh, some answers to some of these. Do you think that that's uh, too early? in the, um, in the emergence. Um, no, we used AI. We're using it. Uh, we used it with our work at ASU I and mean, we had, it was amazing and we're using it now for the diagnostic. It's part of it. So that's why I, I feel confident about what we're right. doing. It's, it's right. interesting because one of the, um, results that we had gotten back, I think the computer looked at it like 2,500 times, you know, like just all these different ways, random ways, right? Like things that, humans brains would take forever to accomplish and right. so no, i think ai is going to help us so much i'm i right. I'm, I'm for it my personal hope is that uh among all the positive things that come from ai 
would be that um, AI would be able to assist us with uh, the identification of diseases and potential treatments. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, Tammy, can you do you have any calls to action you'd like to share if the listeners are a, a scientist or a clinician or a physician or someone that just wants to help out? Uh, what would you like to say to them as far as how they might get involved with Focus Online? Well, um, well, we're definitely um, moving into the treatment side where we'd, we'd love to work with people who understand. If I sat next to a cancer doctor last night who works in imaging and monoclonal antibodies, I'm like, we got his phone number. <laughs> like, We're calling you later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we need people that, that want to definitely advance the treatment field. And um, as far as focus online, I mean, we're you know, we need funding to finish the work we're doing now. We're running, we have a fundraiser in November that um, we're doing and um, we'll put information on, on our website about that. But, um, you know, we just, you know, if anyone wants to help and and we're going to actually be moving into a, a for-profit company to move this diagnostic. And so we'll be doing a reach out to investors and um, and trying to get people to help us move this into, you know, into the hands of the physicians and patients. So yeah, I mean, we, we have lots of calls of action. So we, yeah, we definitely could use help. <laughs> well, you're easy to find focusonline.org yes. uh, on the internet. And I believe there's ways to contact you and a lot of information about what Focus on Lyme is doing. Um, I want to thank you for being here. Uh, I want to thank you for continuing to, to do this. Um, and uh, the commitment that you've made um, is astounding. And uh, you really are one of America's heroes, in my opinion. Oh, Tony, thank you so much. You're so You're welcome. I could not agree more. I echo everything Tony just said. And I just want to share publicly that I love doing podcasts on Friday nights, especially when we have a guest like you, Tammy, because the vibe and the energy I get and the hope brings me through the entire weekend. And I'm going to be on a high this whole weekend because of you, Tammy. So, I mean, you just gave me such hope. I feel amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I wish I could hug you both. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. And now thanks for listening. And I, yeah, I definitely feel like we're, you know, the Lyme community is going to see some really positive things in the next, next year or two is going to be really big for us. So yeah, stay positive.